Hello and welcome to the Essendon People Podcast, an unofficial Essendon Football Club supporter podcast. Hosted by Brendan and Mark, Essendon People is a podcast for those who live and breathe Aussie rules and the Mighty Bombers. From the casual fan to the hardcore supporter, if you have the red and black in your heart, then Essendon People is the podcast for you. Thank you for joining us. Let's Let's start start the pod. pod. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the Essendon People podcast, uh, bringing you some off-season news in this episode. Uh, Brendan, it's only been about 48 hours since we recorded last. Uh, fair to say we're both pretty excited and uh, and on, on the train again and looking forward to recording another episode. Yes, no, very looking, for, uh, looking forward to it here, this um, off-season slash pre-season uh, news segment there. It, it'll be good to recap kind of a lot of the things that's been happening on and off the field, uh, especially kind of maybe more off the field there. There's, certain, there's been a lot of big announcements recently about uh, redevelopments of facilities, uh, plans to do new facilities. Obviously, the, uh, the annual general meeting was uh, was last night there and there was lots of um, lots of different future plans that they've made declarations on, you know, what we want to do over the next five years. So it'll be really good to... Uh, to kind of get into that a little bit and uh, kind of see what what's in store. So with that, we'll jump into it. We might start with the fixture, which got released about a week or so ago. So um, there's been a bit of talk about the fixture. A, a few people, Fox Footy or someone, had us ranked as the second hardest fixture. But I think me and you were speaking that it's sometimes hard to to gauge that. It's it's um, the, the competition so even these days anyway that I don't think it really matters. Uh, you know, of course, it's nice to not play you know, the reigning premier twice or something like that. But uh, all in all, I don't think there's any uh, anything to be upset about the fixture. So um, we play a fair few games at home uh, straight off the bat, don't we? Yeah. So early there, um, we got a lot of a lot of games at home. So I don't think we are, we don't think leave Victoria until uh, until round nine against Sydney. And um and even after that, it's only, I think, Port Adelaide in round 11, uh, West Coast in round 15, Brisbane in round 17, and the Giants in round 21, our, our uh, interstate game. So we only play, I think, five five or six interstate games. Um, yeah, I think overall I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, I, like you said, it's hard to say. What's difficult? What's not difficult? There's, well, it's a 19 team competition, so at least you got to play 18 of the games. You're playing everyone else once, so, and it's the same with everyone else. So it's really only the, what the six games where you've got double ups, where is actually going to be, what makes it difficult or not difficult. Um, so the teams we play twice are Brisbane, Collingwood, Port Adelaide, Richmond, and Sydney. So. I guess when you think about it, Port Adelaide and Brisbane uh, were top four sides. I think Sydney ended up finishing fifth. Uh, Richmond, I think everyone expects to bounce back up the ladder uh, and be a final contender again. And uh, Collingwood, it like, doesn't really matter where either team's on the ladder when you play Collingwood there. It's um, always a, a, you know, a real hard game, tight affair. So... Um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I like the fact that 
was playing a lot of games in Melbourne early, especially over the, the past two years, we've been really affected by travel. Uh, last year, we kind of tr- had a lot of the travel booked into the fixture early. And then the second half of the year, we're going to have a good run at home. But unfortunately, second half of the year is when we hit COVID and we were out of state. So we played actually a lot of games not in Victoria and the boys had to travel a fair bit. So, um, yeah, it'll be good to start uh, against the Cats at the G on Saturday, March 19, 2.10. Traditional time slot, Saturday, 2.10 at the G. So I think it's a, it's a real, really good way to start. and um, I think we can beat the Cats. I'm actually quite bullish on that game. So hopefully we can have a, a big start to the year. Be a good way to start the year with a big turnout in that uh, power core country game and get the job done. So the other one I like there is uh, round 13, the 150-year celebration game uh, against Carlton, obviously the old rival at the MCG. So hoping that that's that traditional time slot as well, that would be good. And um, that's one that we definitely want to win. It'd be, uh, be pretty disappointing to lose that one. So that, that, that'll be, I'm sure, marked on both of our calendars. Yeah, no, I think that's really smartly done by the club because that's coming off the buy too. So round we got the buy in round 12. So it's going to be a big build-up to just a game because it's Carlton, 150-year uh, anniversary. I'm sure there'll be plenty of club functions on and lots of promo about the history of the club. So that I really like how it's that week after the buy so we have a really big lead-in and we have lots of press and you know, all that type of thing. So um, anytime we can get a big win over Carlton's uh, is, is good by me. So uh, hopefully we can uh, we can do the job there. And as you say, uh, Saturday 2.10, MCG, beat the Blues, have a big function dinner Saturday night, and then it's just right off Sunday, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so with that, we might change uh, themes now. We'll go into the 2022 jumper numbers that got uh, announced. So obviously the new players to the club uh, who have been given jumpers uh, numbers and uh, also some players that were on the list that have uh, changed their numbers. So uh, we'll start with number eight, Ben Hobbs. We spoke about this the other night. Um, sort of felt a bit surreal to see him wearing the number eight and sort of he felt like he was uh, he was still in Marty's jumper. So, um, uh, But I'm sure that with time we'll recognise um, I guess the history for Marty, but also Ben Hobbs forging a career. So um, that's quite exciting uh, to see a young player come in and we're, we're keen to see what he does. And uh, I guess who have we got there that's sort of worn the jumper before him and made names for themselves? Yeah, so obviously most Essendon supporters will remember Darren Buick. He played 238 games. I think he's a multiple premiership player in 93 and 2000. Uh, Jason Winderlich who had the, the number eight before Marty. He played, I think, uh, 129 games. And then we've obviously got premiership players like Charlie Payne, uh, Neil Clark, Buick, uh, I think Billy Griffith, going all the way back to, to 1911, who I think is uh, one of the real champions of the football club from, from that era there. With that, we move to the next one, number 11, Will Snelling. So Will obviously was on the list, but uh, has chosen to uh, move his number down to something a bit lower now that's over Zarakis has vacated that jersey. I'm just scratching my head. Will Snelling, he was, I can't even remember what number he was this year. It was not even that long ago. It's something in the 40s. 
I want to say 41. Yeah, I think uh, 41, I'm thinking like a Ben McNeese, but that's obviously going back a little bit further. <laughs> so, um, uh, anyway, I'm scratching my head, but, um, but uh, Will's now wearing the number 11. So uh, some, some people that obviously are of our area that we remember is um, Damien Peverell. I, I know both of us loved watching him play, and we spoke the other night about how he became a real cult figure um, at, at the club. Uh, and Will, I guess, coming through unconventional means through the mid-season draft. Hopefully he's halfway through doing the same, I guess. I feel like he really is. And um, Damien Hardwick won a premiership uh, in that jumper as well in 2000. So, uh, yeah, there's some good history there. Yeah, I also wanted to, to mention John Burt. He obviously played 193 games for, for Essendon there. One of the real champions of the football club. Uh, I believe he's in the, in the team of the century there, um, fantastic uh, player of his era, and uh, I think good that we can. Um, I'm just really happy that the football club recognises the champions. I think we do all football clubs kind of do that, you know, with the name on the locker and stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, it'll be good. Hopefully, through this year, we can kind of recognise people like John Burt, who's obviously played a lot of games of football for the club and um, was a real champion of it, uh, but probably maybe a little bit less well-known than, than others that have played. Uh, before we move off Snelling, he was number 40. Uh, bit 40. Of class, I remember. Um, number 22, Sam Durham. So uh, another player who was on the list who's um, moved his number down the order a little bit. So uh, that's um, good for Sam. Uh Notable players that we remember. John Barnes won a premiership in that in uh, 2000. Bill Duckworth won a couple of premierships in 84 and 85. Uh, the inaugural Norm Smith medalist, uh, Billy Duckworth as well, uh, won a, didn't quite win a grand final off his own boot, but was instrumental in the uh, in the Sheedy uh, flipping the forwards to back, back to the forwards, kicked a couple of goals in that grand final. Uh, I think uh, did, a, did a pretty decent job on, on Dermot that day, along with... Uh, with Kevin Walsh, and you know he's one of the um, one of the great men of the football club, especially during that period. I'm slightly disappointed that Will Snelling um, didn't double his number there and go for 22 instead, because there was a player by the name of Bill Snell in 1950 who won a premiership in that jumper. So it would have been would have been a bit ironic to see uh, Bill Snell and then uh, Will Snelling. <laughs> years later, uh, Will Snelling, yeah, it's just a, a bit of a play on the name. That's. Uh, who we got next on the list here? Well, we've got uh, in the number 26, uh, Kane Baldwin. Uh, obviously, he's much, much hype there, Kane, and he's kind of come in, hasn't played a game yet, but he's taking over the legacy of uh, of Carl Hooker, who's in the 26. I really like this uh, selection. I think in recent years, there's been a lot of uh, p- picking of players to take jumper numbers on that have really... Um, meant something to you. So like say Sammy Draper's now in the number two because that's the uh, that's the jumper that, that Tom Bell Chambers had. So there's kind of a lot of these legacy pieces that guys that kind of done a lot for them in getting them into the club and maybe even potentially playing similar roles that kind of come in. And I think the way Hooks he played, he was a heart and soul player, uh, really ce- celebrated a goal, did every- worked hard for his teammates um, I think that's kind of what we hope maybe Kane Baldwin to be, especially as a kind of kick it on my head, let me wrestle Mark 
forward. So that would actually be really good. And, of course, um, Mark Thompson, Chris Heffernan, both premiership players, all the 26. So it's got a it's got a pretty good legacy there when we're talking about Kyle Hooker, Mark Thompson, Chris Heffernan. Let's hope in 15 years' time we're talking about Kane Baldwin in the same light. Yeah, and I'm, uh, it's surreal to think that Kyle Hooker is not going to be out there anymore. It's uh, I'm, I'm still not over his retirement. That was one of the one of the more emotional <laughs> uh, announcements. Anyway, we move on to uh, a new player, Alistair Lord. He's going to take the number 28. So um, with this, there's been a few premierships won in this Guernsey. So um, 1942, Sid Silk, Alec Eppes in 62 and 65, and Paul Weston in 84 and 85. So again, hopefully Alistair can emulate some predecessors there and uh, and add himself to that list. Yeah, well, we, we talked about Alistair the other night being being a, a bloke off the off the halfback flank there, hopefully with his run and carry can really set it up. And, you know, obviously Alec Appis is uh, one of the great halfback flankers in the in the history of the game and, and an Essendon. And we talked about this previously, the, the Barry Davis, Bluey Shelton, Alec Eppis halfback line of that Essendon side in, in the 60s is is renowned as one of the great lines in the history of the game, especially here in Victoria. So, you know, obviously if Alistair Lord can um can co- contribute to a similar level at the end of his career, that would be great for him. And also, you know, we want to talk about Paul Weston there, a real champion of uh, of just the game of Australian rules football there. I think he's widely regarded as one of the premier players, I think, in uh, – South Australia before he came over there and obviously came to the club at the right time and was a real major contributor in 84-85 to um to win those premierships. So yeah, hopefully it bodes well for Alistair for the future. The next guy down here is Jake Kelly wearing the number 29. So he's obviously come across um, in the Francy period from Adelaide and he's going to help out in defence for us. So uh, the number 29 on the list when the, the announcement came out, it listed players like Gary Moorcroft that we know won a premiership in 2000 in that Guernsey. Alan Davey played 100 games in that Guernsey. They're, they're some of the sort of more recent ones that we obviously uh, are familiar with. Um, I really like the fact that it's come from uh, from Ambrose. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I feel like they're going to be very similar players, but very hard, um, you know, happy to go in there and stick up the teammates, that, those kind of things. So um, although his name's not on the list, I think Paddy Ambrose is really deserving of having some recognition of having passed that number on to Jake Kelly. Yes, strong body, versatile, selfless. Um, yeah, if Jake Kelly can have half the impact that that um, Paddy Ambrose has had on the list over the past five years or so that, Probably even longer with Paddy. He's been here. It'll be um, it'd be really good because, yeah, he's one of those guys that heart and soul types has big influences on the club. Did Ambrose that maybe in time might be forgotten because he didn't have the premierships or the games or you know all the accolades that go along with it. But those guys are really when people talk about fabric of the club, guys like Paddy Ambrose is is what we talk about with fabric players. Hopefully another guy who can become a player like that is Garrett McDonough. So he's going to take the number 36, uh, Guernsey. Uh, again, like you said, the, the, by the time he gets the number 36, Guernsey, there's, you know, not all the accolades that come with the with 
the, some of the lower numbers, but there's still been players that have won premierships in that Guernsey, which is uh, Alan Thor in 1949, Paul Doran in 1962, and Peter Bradbury in 1984. So um, hopefully Garrett can go on to add himself to that list as well and uh, really some any spot in the side. Yes, and then uh, and then we'll move on to number 39 in Patrick Voss. Uh, as of yet, there's been no uh, no one that's won a premiership in the in the 39. That's probably, as you say, probably more about higher numbers going to you know the lower numbers goes to you, the blokes that are you know traditionally the superstars of the side and the higher numbers is kind of bit. But there is one bloke that's played over 100 games and got his name on the locker, and that's uh, a man that you and I both respect. Uh, very much, and we have great regard for, and that's the great, the great Heath Hocking, who obviously our uh, Player of the Year award is named after. So um, let's hope he can get his name on the locker with Heath, and he has a premiership under it as well. So that'll be uh, that'll be really good. We'll move on to the next segment here, which is that Dyson Heppel has been announced to be the solo captain again uh, for the sixth straight season now so uh he's 29 and uh he took over the captaincy at the start of 2017 from joe watson at the time so he's captained 85 games and um and he's only nine games away from his 200th overall game so um i think that we're both pretty happy with this to 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 put it straight and um there's a uh, there's a lot of talk sometimes through supporters about (laughs) whether Merritt should take over or co-captain and stuff. I think that will come in time. But um, I think for the moment, it's really clear that Dyson's a leader at the club and he's really well-respected. Um, I think he represents the club well on and off the field. And, and I'm really happy to see his, uh, his name confirmed as captain again. Yes, I'm happy that he's been named uh, captain as well. There's been a lot of publicity recently, you know, little um, clips on the club website which kind of give an insight into kind of what Dyson does and says uh, amongst the group at training and stuff like that. And as you say, it's clear that, that he is the leader. Um, he's not just leader by name. He is the spiritual leader. He's the guy that people go to. He's the guy people follow. And whilst he's there and still, you know, playing good enough football, uh, I think it's, it's right that he's captain. You don't, you know, you don't want to burden him with the captaincy. And that's maybe where some of the talk was, Maybe do we just – he's had so many injuries, especially to his legs over the past couple of seasons. Do we do we just let him focus on getting his body right and getting back to it? But I think the type of character that Dyson is, I think he's kind of – that leadership and kind of that's a real part to his game. He's not going to be able to to not do that. So um, I do I do say that when the decision is made to maybe give it to Merritt or McGrath or whoever the next captain is – I just want to get your thoughts on it, Mark. I'm, I'm against the co-captaincy idea. I reckon you pick one bloke as captain, and if you want to have someone else, you make them vice-captain, or you have multiple vice-captains and a deputy captain or whatever it is, but you got to have one bloke who's the man. I guess if you kind of look at the whole John Warsfold, Ben Rutten, I'm a coach this year, I'm a coach, it kind of was, I think, a lot of talk afterwards, like they weren't quite sure who the man was, and you know, as simple as it is, it's, there's got to be one bloke that that's the man, and you follow the man, not multiple men. If that kind of makes sense, 
I fully agree. And I think we touched on it briefly last year at some point or, or maybe throughout this season was that uh, I think we're both real big fans of you have a captain, you know, the, the old school traditional kind of style set up where you have a captain, a vice captain and the deputy. And then maybe you've got a couple of guys under that that are in the in that leadership group, but they don't have an official title, but they're in the leadership group. And so, you know, you've got your five guys in the leadership group and you've got your three guys who have defined roles. And I think that defined role is, is what you just touched on there, which is important that, you know, if players are looking for someone for inspiration or, you know, during a game or they've got an issue off the field that they want to go and see someone about, um, you know, an issue within the club that they're not comf- comfortable talking to everyone about, but they want to see someone about, it's important to have that one figure that you know that is the guy that you go to or the person that you go to. So, yeah, I agree. And uh, I think when the time comes, I'm sure that if Dyson's still playing at that point, I'm sure that he'll probably be happy to hand it over and, and take a bit of a back seat and, and help mentor someone who takes it. So, um, But for the moment, uh, yeah, happy to, to watch Dyson go again next year as captain. Um, something we really enjoyed talking about this year was the VFLW um, program and the season and the results and, and um, how the ladies were, were tracking when they were playing. So uh, they're stepping that up a notch. Obviously, we've got the AFLW licence now um, granted and we're going to enter the competition not in this season coming, but the following one. So we've got another 12 months of um, focus on the BFLW without having the AFLW also there. And they're essentially going to step up that program a bit to start training three days a week now and also uh, having some education-based learning as as part of their program as well. So uh, I guess just going to another level of professionalism and and just getting ready for that step to AFLW, which I think is a really good move. Yes, and I uh, we'll talk about it a bit later there about the upgrades to the the facilities at the hangar there. How they've got the stadia dedicated uh, women's football facilities, so they've got their own change room. They've got other facilities that are dedicated just to to women to women that um kind of makes them feel more included and more comfortable. That's that's their space. They're a key part to the football club. Um, they've obviously got access to the ovals, the hangar, the gym, the altitude rooms, the pool, the hot and colds for recovery, and kind of getting that balance with you know all the other foot, the AFL, the VFL, kind of getting that balance that they've got. Yes, whilst it's a shared facilities amongst all the teams, there also is a dedicated area for them, for them to spend time in, for them to build their culture, their brand, their identity. I think's really good, and I think uniquely that the the VFLW's elite high-performance medical team is staffed entirely by females. I think that's kind of unique amongst the VFLW competition. And I think that also just feeds into having women mentors, women kind of supporting other women. And um, it's really, really pleasing to see. Yeah, agreed. And uh, before we go to a break, we're going to touch on... We played in the grand final recently, and um, that was the uh, VWFL grand final, which is the wheelchair uh, the wheelchair team. So wheelchair dons, I, I guess, is what, what we go by the name of. And we played against the arch rival in Collingwood. Unfortunately, we lost that game um, by five points, so didn't, didn't manage to get over the line this year, but I'm sure that they'll bounce back uh, in next season. Uh, better again. Um, unfortunately, that was a fairly emotional game, wasn't it, due to some news uh, that came out just prior to that? 
Yeah, so um, we'll take this a bit a bit seriously now. But um, uh, prior to the grand final, uh, I think Collingwood player uh, Brendan Stroud actually passed away. So um, Brendan was someone who was highly influential in the Victorian wheelchair football league community. And, um, yeah, he's kind of all, all participants across the league uh, felt, felt Brendan's passing uh, quite strongly, um, let alone his, his wife, family and friends. Uh, so it was a um, – and watching some of the commentary of the game was obviously high potential that the game would have been called off. And then obviously they went ahead with it and um, it was emotional for the Essendon players, let alone the Collingwood players who, you know, he was their teammate that they played in uh, with regularly, they trained with. Um, if it happened so suddenly overnight, the play, you know, the next day, um, yeah, it was obviously a big thing. So I just wanted to recognise uh, Brendan, uh, his wife, Natalie, family and friends, and obviously the Essendon and Collingwood uh, players and the, the broader uh, Victorian wheelchair football league community. Yeah, well said. So with, with that, we'll go to a break and um, come back with some more news. Okay, so we'll jump into some more corporate-style news now. We're starting with the annual general meeting. The AGM was held last night, uh, which was Wednesday, December 15. So um, that's quite a, a long kind of formal meeting, isn't it, Brendan? And um, I guess if we kick that off, there was... Uh, the re-election of the director. So Paul Brasher and Melissa Green were uh, declared re-elected. And I think that they were basically the only candidates uh, for, for those roles. So that was more of a formality um, than anything. But um, fair to say, we're, we're both big fans of um, Paul Brasher, um, to be honest. And uh, without any disrespect, I, I don't know a lot about um, Melissa Green and, and uh, her recent roles and involvements. But um uh, yeah, happy to keep the same because things have been going pretty well uh, the last 12 months, so more of the same, hopefully. Yeah, well, and Brasher as as director and president has obviously got, got a lot more higher profile, has made a lot more commentary than Melissa Green has. Um, as you say, uh, things have been going all right under, you know, the stewardship, if you'd call it that, of, of Brasher and Green, so happy that for them to be re-elected. Um, I, as you said, Paul Brasher is kind of really good business-wise. How can you tell he's really good business-wise? And he's got a he's got a got a good reputation. You know, he's done a lot of impressive things in his career there. But as the president, the thing that I really like is the way he speaks. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't speak down to people. Uh, he just speaks to you, not at you. I think that's a that's maybe a bit of a difference to to other people in senior management that we've had over the journey that he, he Paul Brasher feels like he's an actual, he's an actual just person like you or I, he's, that's how he talks it at you. And I, you know, obviously he's, he's different to people like to you and I, he's obviously much more successful than, <laughs> than we are and probably a lot smarter as well. Um, but yeah, just when he talks, he just comes across as a normal bloke. Like I love the stories that he tells about how, he remembers a certain event because he went and got a pie afterwards. He got a burger, you know, like and how he was 
he's getting frustrated at home, you know, and he's yelling at the TV and his wife says, oh, mate, calm down. Like, it's like, it's like, it's just his, his way of communicating with people, mate, uh, just engages with you, right? And the things, and apart from his style of communicating, what he actually says is pretty good. Like, he's been pretty strong when he's had to be strong, right? And then other stuff is kind of like, oh, yeah, look, that's not, is this the die to hill on? Is this the hill to die on? I think he's quite judicious in picking those areas, but when he, when he needs to be firm and he needs to act in the best interest of the football club, it looks like that's what he's been doing, and that's obviously from afar and it's only through videos that he puts out, but I, I really like it. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um... I think he's a it's a good lead, he's a good leader and uh, yeah look forward to hopefully seeing a couple more of those videos early next year like he did last year um, that provides a bit of direction and uh, where things are going. Uh, there was also five new life members inducted last night and they were Adrian Dodoro, Dr. Brendan Dimorton, Jared Dillon, Michael Maplestone, and Ricky Dyson. So Maplestone and Dillon received life membership under the volunteer category. And uh, the remainder, Dodoro, Dumortin, and Ricky Dyson um, all served as either, as either players or um, club officials. So uh, we might spend just a quick um, minute or so on uh, on each of them. Uh, so I'll start with um, Jared Dillon. So I was involved in the Essendonian, Essendonians uh, Cottery Group uh, for over three decades, serving as a secretary and treasurer for 26 of those years. So... Um, the Cotteries is something that kind of gets thrown around a little bit um, and it's kind of a term, to be honest, that I, I didn't initially really know a lot about and I knew that there was kind of these, you know, groups of people and stuff, but they're, they're quite a powerful element of the club and um, there's some really important people that are in, involved in these. So um, I guess that's recognition for, for Jared's involvement in that. And um, as part of that, he was responsible for numerous projects that, generated um, significant financial returns for the club and uh, and he's been generous uh, financially to the club himself um, with past players and, and uh, associated programs as well. So um, he was a driving force behind the facilitation of fundraising to secure the return of Dick Reynolds' Brownlow medals to the club so that all the Bomber fans could enjoy that. So, that, so things like that are really significant for fans just like you and me. Um, you know, someone has put in a lot of their own time and effort uh, for, for the enjoyment of a lot of others. so um, And that's why he's been recognised with uh, life, life membership um, at the club. So really, really deserving there for, for Jared. Yes, and the, the, the securing of, of the Brownlow medals, I think, is, is something that's, that is important and, and does go to the enjoyment. I, I've spoken to you previously, Mark, and maybe even mentioned it on the podcast that when I've been down to the Hall of Fame when it was open at Windy Hill, they're going through that and seeing the medals. And then I think I, t- I speak specifically about Bill Hutchison and, and, and his two Brownlows and the one that he, he won on the night in the 50s and one that was awarded him in 89 uh, on Countback, right, and to see them side by side, two Brownlow medals, you know, 30, 40 years apart, the one that's kind of a little bit worn because it's been touched and loved and things over the years and one that's kind of fresh and new and seeing them side by side. So to see the, to see the Brownlow medals, uh, to see other artefacts of the football club, you know, that those things are really important, especially like in the 150th year, like how that connection to the past and kind of 
the you know when you walk in there you see like the caps that the the sides won when the premierships when we were in the VFA you see you know Coleman's boots and you you see they oh, oh my god all these great figures that we didn't have a chance to to appreciate ourselves and and that's important because in 50 years 60 years we're talking about you know people you know 10 11 years old going into the hall of fame scene Oh, this is the jumper of the great James Hurd, or this is the jumper of, you know, Kyle Hooker, or, you know, all these types of players that we appreciate now. But in 50 years, new generations come through. All they hear is names and stories and the great deeds that these people have done. And that's kind of a little tangible snapshot that you can grab and, and see. And that's your link to history. So it's really good that people like Jared have been able to contribute to the club in that way. So I guess we'll move on next to, to Michael Maplestone. So he's been involved, funnily enough, in uh, the selection panel for the for the Hall of Fame. Uh, instrumental in uh, in the establishment of the original Hall of Fame at Windy Hill. Uh, played 114 games himself. Has contributed to the VFL program. But I guess significantly for me uh, was the um, author of some critical kind of Essendon books historical documents, if, if you would, in Flying High and Flying Higher. So they're obviously uh, books that before my time, but my my father had purchased them or even my grandparents had purchased them uh, back in the day. And as a kid as a kid growing up, kind of that was the way I learned about history because they said, oh, here, read this. <laughs> so that, kind of, that was kind of your introduction into reading about all these historical figures and kind of there's been a lot of books that have come on since then, and we we talk a lot about you know Dan Eddy and the books that he's done on you know Doug Ackley and Coleman's and Reynolds and the clubs putting out their own 150 year book this year that you can you can order as well. So they're kind of like the first iterations of these books that were made available to the public that people could learn about the history of the club. So it's good to see Michael get recognised. With life membership. The next person we had here was Dr. Brendan Z. Morton. So he's the current club doctor uh, and former president of the Sports Medicine Association of Australia. So he joined us in the 90s and um, he started at the club as a, as a senior medical doctor and then later teamed up with um, the late Dr. Bruce Reed, uh, who's obviously really well known uh, for his role as the club doctor. And um, something that they're really well known for is. I guess working together to provide to provide uh, Essendon players and their families with with medical support and being you know the the family doctor uh, essentially for for those players and their families and being able to do stuff away from the footy club for them as well as at the footy club. Um, so he's he's been recognised for that. Uh, he's got extensive sports medicine knowledge. Uh, he's been uh, I guess a really valuable asset uh, to to the medical team at the club and the players in. I guess a constant pursuit to, to success and to bettering and uh, having less injuries and recovering from injuries. So uh, I guess uh, been there since the nineties, it's been a long time now, like, you know, that's over 20 years of service and he's been um, recognized for that and rewarded with life membership, which is good to see. Yes. Yes. And as you said, like, is it, these doctors at football clubs, are not just a doctor in a professional setting for you as an athlete, they become your personal doctor they become your family doctor. So they're the people that you go to 
when when your wife is sick or when your children are sick and it's not just when you're a footballer at the time, when you're a pass player, you still go back. That was a lot of the legacy when uh, when Dr. Bruce Reed did pass away. A lot of the former players were coming out and saying, like, the connection they have to Bruce and the football club extended many, many, many years after they had left the football club, right, and the valuable things that they did for them family, not just as a medical professional, but also as a guy they could go and speak to and talk about things and all the different challenges that everybody faces over the course of their lives. These are people that you can go to to get advice from. So for, for Dr. Brendan de Morton to be recognised uh, with life membership, I think um, it's a really important thing. So the, the next person to be recognised or awarded life membership was uh, Ricky Dyson. Uh, obviously played from for the Bombers from 04 to 2012, played 114 games, and, and, and more recently was involved in, in the VFL program uh, for 2018-2019 where he, you know, was in assistant coaching and development roles. And obviously COVID has kind of ruined the last two years of, uh, of VFL football and the cuts that have had to be made. But it's um, it's good that Ricky gets recognised for his contribution as a, as a player and a coach. And hopefully, you know, with the VFL program kicking up again, maybe he can get, get back involved. Because, uh, you know, I think once his playing days were done in 2012, I think he played at Bandura uh, locally. And, but he has been on a progression to getting involved into coaching at that level, at local level, and then into the VFL and hopefully AFL. And, you know, one of these things, you, you read your local papers and, you know, you can kind of see all these things, all these stories. So, and obviously, when you, Ricky's got a bit of a higher profile because he played at, the, at that league level there. So, it's one of those things, oh, Ricky Dyson, oh, oh, you see this article, you read it, you kind of keep track of these people as they go along during the years. So, yeah, hopefully... Um, big things in, for the future for Ricky. Uh, the last one here that was awarded life membership, I've, I feel like I won't do this justice speaking about this guy, so I, I feel like I have to let you you go through <laughs> this one, Brennan. Oh, the, uh, the great Adrian Dodoro, the man, the man of many names. <laughs> he gets uh, you know, disco jackets, like that's all the social media refers to that. But, yeah, obviously general... Manager of list and recruiting has been kind of in that role since 1998. Um, I think the quote that the club used, and I'll, I'll read this directly, throughout his time at the Bombers, Dodoro's passion to take the club forward and its list manager and recruiting has been unquestionable. And I guess that's kind of what kind of it gets it gets a lot of criticism, uh, especially from the media for being hard to deal with and. Um, yeah, but I guess his passion to see Essendon succeed is unquestioned. And everything that I've ever seen from him, reported about him over the journey, you can't you can't question that he he loves the club and he wants to see it do well. So, you know, at the core, that's that's the the values that you and I hold, right? And that kind of what kind of the values that all you know, Essendon people hold. And that's kind of, you know, at the short of it, that's kind of what I guess life me- being awarded life membership is. It's it's a recognition that you're an Essendon person. It's a form of recognition of your Essendon person status almost. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good to see Adrian get recognition for 
over 20 years of hard work at the football club. And I think similar to when we were speaking just before about uh, Dr. Brendan Mort- uh, Morton and uh, Dr. Bruce Reed and, and their connection with the players um, as well and, uh, and over long periods of time, I think Dodoro falls into a similar category. Uh, I, I think he, he seems to hold relationships with players and, and their longstanding. So uh, it was only the other day I saw a photo of um, David Zarakis and, and obviously someone, whether that's the club or one of his mates, past player or something, has organised a, you know, a, a, it must have been a bit of a retirement from Essendon kind of thing and they've gone to a to a wine bar or a, a fancy restaurant or something like that and there's a photo of them all in there and there's, you know, Kyle Hooker and there's some past players like Melksham and, and the likes there as well and, and there's probably 10 or so of them there and Doro was one of them. So it was just really interesting to see that Dodoro is literally probably the first person that's welcomed him into the club and he's there on the last day when he's left as well. Like he's, he's maintained that relationship with him the whole way through. Yeah. And it's, I don't know the ins and outs of who makes these calls, but he's also, he's probably, he's the guy that gives you the call to say, mate, you're now an Essendon footballer. Like he's the, he's the first point of contact where it's like when you're a kid getting drafted, like the reason why you're now at Essendon is because, Adrian's been the man to make the call. And by the fact of his role as list manager and recruiting officer, he's probably one of the one of the guys that makes the call says, mate, unfortunately, you're no longer an Essendon footballer because <laughs> that's the role that he holds. So it's kind of – he's kind of at both ends of the spectrum. And because he's been at the club for so long, like you have people like Zaharak as you've played two, over 200 games. He's there at the start and he's there at the end. Right, and you know, you hear stuff like Brendan Goddard mentioned that uh, when he was told, you know, that he was no longer going to be given a thing. I think uh, I'll get the. I think I got this correct now. I apologise if I'm wrong, but you know, the door I couldn't be there to tell him because he was so emotional. He felt so invested in in Goddard as a player that he he would kind of get, he got upset at having to give the bad news. You know. You know, when a couple of years ago they had a clip of Alwyn Davey and the boys, the young twins that came through, that went back to the hangar for a James Heard Academy Day. And they interviewed Alwyn and they said, oh, you know, it's good to be back at the club, obviously, now at the hangar as opposed to Windy Hill. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's great to see all the old faces like Adrian. And that, that was the one name that he managed to – his name was Adrian being Dodoro, right? So – that connection that he has. And I think even before his list management, he was at the club in kind of like a welfare role. We was looking after the, you know, one of the really first welfare officers at clubs in, in the AFL in a specific welfare role. So I think that's kind of almost the experiences that he had in that role has really influenced his, you know, player manager, the, you know, the recruiting side of it. So yeah, it's, um, it's good to see. And hopefully, from our perspective, at least I speak to myself here, it's got many more years to come at the football club. So you want to you want to have good people, and you want to have people who are invested in the success of the football club. And you know, it's not just a job; it's kind of it's important. It's not like they're just going in there, cashing in a check. Like recruiting is a pretty hard business. A lot of long hours, a lot of unrewarded work. And Adrian, you know, puts that time in. So let's let's keep good people, Essendon people. Agreed. 
uh, at the AGM, there was also the 2022 to 2026 strategic plan was um, presented. So uh, there, there's kind of five key pillars or, or strategic missions, which is premierships, people, heartland, national footprint and commercial strength. So if we quickly kind of go through each one, premierships was was pretty straightforward and blunt what the target is there. So they want every team to have won at least one premiership by 2026. And when they talk about every team, they're talking about AFL, AFLW, VFL, VFLW and the VWFL, the wheelchair team. So um, pretty blunt, pretty aggressive target, I would say. Um and I hope for all of our sake that it comes true. Yes, well, it's good that we say that we exist to win premierships and we are a finals football club, every team, every year. You know, there's obviously some interviews. I remember Dustin Fletcher saying when he got to the club, the expectation was you you play prelims every year. That was the expectation. And obviously we were quite successful during the 90s and then, in recent years, for whatever reason, and there's obviously been some well-documented reasons why, I think maybe the focus of the football club maybe moves slightly away from that core thing of let's not just play finals, win finals, but win multiple finals every year. So I'm glad that even if it means nothing and even if it's just like, you know, a meaningless statement, it's put out there now. That's the expectation that people can refer back to. So the next one is, is people, and that's obviously, um, you know, members in the in the community, in the club, kind of everyone associated with the club. So I think the target is for uh, 125,000 members by 2026 uh, to kind of be, you know, be a real national leader in the Indigenous community with the establishment of uh, coaching and mentoring roles across all teams and, you know, also create development programs through the um, EFC Leadership Academy and really kind of kind of grow the next generation of, you know, leaders in, in the community and have, that, have a connection to football and that obviously leads into our greater history of Indigenous involvement in the football club going back through the years, so... That's obviously a big target of the football club. Next one was Heartland, which is, again, pretty simple. Uh, there was two targets. One was the redevelopment of Windy Hill uh, to have been completed, which creates, uh, I guess, a destination precinct for women's state and community league football, allied health, medical, fitness and wellbeing services. And the second one there was the completion of the NEC hangar, uh, development as well, which again creates uh, a place that supports community um, education and uh, elite performance and sport medicine as well. Yeah, and I guess just on those two things, it's funny that they've mentioned that together. I think the last segment of this podcast will talk in, in depth on both those things and how those things are, are re- actually quite important to where we're going forward there, and, and as in moving forward and also recognising our past, you know, and the whole idea of this being an 150th anniversary year. So the the next kind of pillar is uh, what they've dubbed national footprint and they've said the consolidation enhancement of a truly national brand and that's kind of being a top-rated club across a competition in, in metrics like as attendance, apparel, 
broadcasting, uh, you know, digital and social media engagement with fans kind of moving away or kind of not moving away but kind of moving into a new new frontier and how you engage with people and using the analytics to kind of capitalise on that engagement and stuff like that. So that's um, be interesting to see what they actually do with that. The last one here was commercial strength. So uh, they want to become, the target is that we want to become the top rated uh, club for revenue generation across uh, the key benchmarks. So sponsorship, membership, corporate networks uh, and the like. And uh, then the, the second target here was to generate in excess of $4 million um, contribution uh, per annum. So every year through the establishment of independent investment ventures portfolio and the commercialization of the NEC hangar. I think in recent times, we've seen uh, examples of that commercialization of the hangar um, where we've teamed up with the uh, Western United, I think it's called the, so- the Soccer Club, um, who's using those facilities. And we're obviously getting something out of it, I, I assume, in a financial sense. And uh, the other one there, uh, I guess, establishing an independent investment venture portfolio, there's not, that's all it says. There's not any more detail on how that will be done or how we propose to do that or when or anything like that. So that'll be interesting to see that play out. Uh, I guess it's good that, that the club recognises uh, the importance of commercial strength and it was something that I guess really held us up when COVID hit in, you know, 2020 and uh, things kind of got pretty bad and the, and the league sort of shut for a bit and everything. And there was only a, a few clubs that stayed standalone and independent from AFL assistance. And we were one of those. And uh, I guess if you have a good commercial strength that allows you to do that and separate yourself um, and, and stand on your own two feet. So it's an important part. And it's good to say that they recognize that. Yes. And then also, diversifying your interests actually helps you that. So COVID is a good example. There'll be certain things that certain industries that COVID affects more than others. So if you have a broad range of different uh, options of how you bring money in, uh, if one goes down, we go, okay, that's not great, but we're still getting money from another area and it kind of helps, you know, balance it all out a little bit. So it'll be very interesting to see what they do. I do like the uh, the partnership with the A-League Western United. Um, hopefully there's some more of that to come. We obviously share facilities with the, with the Paralympic Committee uh, currently at the hangar there. So there is scope to maybe broaden that out to other, uh, other organisations where they can kind of cross-pollinate ideas and training and stuff like that. So there was much, you know, about five years ago, this chat, we're going to get our own, MBL team and you know <laughs> all these things. So um, yeah, obviously you know we had the the esports team as well that you know was kind of maybe you could maybe say it was kind of it was kind of a bit of a different diversification of you know where money could go to maybe generate income into the football club as a whole. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they do over the coming years. Speaking of money, the 2021 financial result also was announced recently. And uh, I, I guess in short, the, the club announced a, a statutory profit of $8.2 million. So uh, obviously in the last 10 or so years with the whole saga and some of those things that have happened, there's there's been a, a fair issue financially and, and there was quite a bit of debt. Um, I guess that's been wipes now and we've now made a, a pretty healthy profit um you know in a year that 
were still impacted, uh, I guess, by by COVID as well. So that that was a positive to see uh, that financially things are looking up, I guess. Yeah, so we have an, an underlying cash profit from operations of $5 million this year. The, uh, the net assets of the club have increased from uh, $40.8 million to $49 million. So what's that, $7.2 million. Uh, the club is, once again, bank debt-free with the expansion of the hangar now complete, and that was $50 million. And obviously, there's now scope to actually capitalise on future commercial future commercial growth. So, um, yeah, Hangar being a $50 million asset, uh, this second stage development being $21 million, us being debt-free, us having 81, 82,000 members, potential growth to what they want, 125,000. I think there's... Um, positivity there and then when we talk about the development of Windy Hill all the potential community uh, benefits and outcomes that could come from that I think it's um yeah it's I think keep saying it's exciting times ahead because that's that's what it is you know we're not we're we're no financial gurus so some of this stuff goes over our head but I guess kind of the general vibe we're getting from the club is that um yeah, it's um, things are on the right track. Yeah, it's, I guess speaking a bit about the facilities, we might go to a quick break now and we'll come back with a little bit more detail on that. Probably um, good timing to go into a little bit more detail. So uh, we'll start with the NEC hangar expansion. So the second stage um, of that project uh is, is now being complete and they've had the, the opening and, and kind of the official uh, opening of it. So it was a, a $21.5 million redevelopment and that was alongside Paralympics Australia and had uh, federal government and Victorian state government uh, representation. So the uh, Paralympics um, Australia partnership, I guess, is an important one. They're, they're based out of there and um, that's another example, I guess, of the facility being used for more than just, you know, as an Essendon football club. So um, becoming becoming a real flexible and versatile um, environment and facility. So that development um, saw that the, the items that got added in as part of that stage of the development was the Community Education and Events Centre uh, pro- project part of the the the, uh, the stage and um, that completed I guess the original vision that they had uh, for the hangar so um, which addressed the growth of women's and, and community sport in that area of the northwest so uh, it, it looks really good from the photos and the videos that we've seen in the opening and everyone seemed pretty happy with it and um, it seems to just be going from strength to strength down there and it, it seems like there's always work happening there but it's it's just charging forward really Yes, yes, and I think you know the as you said the the partnership with Paralympics Australia has has actual off field benefits as well. You know, there's talk when they went to the Paralympics recently that all all the the football club players and stuff they associate with these athletes, so they learn their stories, they the struggles and challenges that they them as yeah, Paralympians kind of go through into, and then kind of sets a good example to follow and looking to kind of execute and achieve your goals, you know, winning gold medal for a Paralympian, we want to win a premiership. So kind of how that works out. So um, 
Yeah, so the project or the redevelopment has seen the creation of dedicated women's football performance training centres, dormitory accommodation for Paralympic athletes, uh, participants in the Essen and Next Generation Academy, uh, community change rooms for uh, EDFL games, as well as Riddle District uh, League games. Uh, there's a community health and wellbeing hub, uh, has a health clinic, uh, classrooms. Uh, the, for us there, the, uh, the, the creation of a, of a Hall of Fame there. So it's called the, uh, the Glory and Fame Sports Museum and it's, it encompasses the kind of histories of not only the footy club but also Paralympics Australia, uh, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders Sports Hall of Fame. So it's kind of it'll be good to have all three of those kind of all together under the the glory and fame banner, and obviously alongside cafe, uh, improved bomber shop, uh, that type of thing. The reason we laugh, I guess, at the uh, glory and fame sports museum part of the the discussion is that. Uh, this may have been mentioned on previous podcasts, but we, we committed a long time ago to go into the Hall of Fame Museum at Windy Hill and life got in the way. And since then, they've shut it down, completely relocated it to a new suburb. There's been a pandemic in between, uh, a global financial crisis, and uh, we still haven't been to the Hall of Fame Museum. So hopefully with this new and improved museum, uh, I'm definitely keen to get down there and see it and uh, maybe have a coffee at the uh, cafe as well. I think the initial discussion we had about let's go to the Hall of Fame was us sitting in the schoolyard, right, kicking back, shooting the breeze at like recess or lunch, saying, "Hey, let's go, to, <laughs> let's go to the Hall of Fame." Oh, I think we mentioned that we'd previously gone independently, and I was like, "Oh, it'd be good to go together and kind of check it all out," and like that's that's, that's coming on like twelve. 15 years ago, <laughs> we still haven't got like. <laughs> in the, I'm pretty sure when we said this, like James Heard was still playing. <laughs> That's how long ago it's been. <laughs> like and Kevin now, Sheedy was co- Kevin Sheedy was coach. <laughs> and now both of those people are in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, we uh, we digress a little bit, but um, I, I guess to. And the funny thing with that is. It's actually quite local to where we are. It's not as if we've got a trek from the other side of the country or even the other side of Melbourne. It's like it's like 20 minutes. <laughs> In all these years, we haven't been able to, to, get, to get there. Yeah, there's absolutely no excuse for not having been there. And um, But I, I, know, I know that we're both very keen uh, to go and have a look at it. And it, it looks fantastic from the, the photos that I've seen of it uh, online on the club's website and the like. Um, it looks really good. They've done a really good job of it and uh, and put a lot of time and effort and thought into it. So it will definitely be worth the trip and we'll, we will get there. Uh, it sounds like it'll be next year because I don't think it's officially open for the public um, with restrictions and things still in place a little bit at the moment. So I don't think it'll be officially open until hopefully early next year. But uh, when it is open... Um, I think we might be uh, a couple of the first tickets purchased, hopefully. (laughs) So that pretty much, um, I guess, kind of summarises the hangar and where that's gone over the last little bit. And I I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm I'm not sure whether there's any future stages at the moment. I know that there there is a grand master plan. Um, That's stage 
two, I guess. The second stage has been complete. I'm not sure if there's a stage three or what it encompasses. I'm sure there's something in the pipeline. I think I think there is something in the pipeline. I think they've got the main like footprint at Tullamarine, which this has all been built on. Now I'm I'm trying to, I'm plucking a really random memory here, but I think there is also an additional plot of land that the club either purchased or had had some sort of right to purchase built into the contract when they first first purchased the land. So after a certain amount of years, if they decided they want to to you know purchase the land, they could have you know exercise an option in the contract. I'm not. Like I said, that's a vague memory from the time when the decision was made to move from Windy Hill to to Tullamarine. Um, whether or not that option has been made available or they've let it lapse, um, I guess since since the time we signed the contract, we, we had the saga, we went into debt, we had a pandemic, so whether or not they actually had the financial capacities to, to actually exercise the, the term in the contract and actually make those payments, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, I, yeah, I think the, the, the ground is maybe like across the road from where the facility is or something. There's a, there is definitely, I recall, a plot of land where they had an option to purchase. But I guess now the facility on the footprint that it is now, I think it's pretty pretty full because, you know, it's a big, big block of land, but there's two full-size ovals and, the hangar, as it was before, the stage one development was pretty big. And, you know, we've been there a couple of times. You see, and think, oh, okay, you're going to make a redevelopment. It's like, well, there's not really a lot of room to make the redevelopment that they've, they've done already. So I think they've squeezed every square inch that <laughs> they could to actually put this new one on. So, yeah, I don't know what more they could possibly squeeze into it. But you, you never know. You never know. Maybe, they, maybe they, we go up. It goes from two stories to four stories to fifteen stories. Maybe that's that's the future. Yes, or we go down, we build under the ground, and we have like a lair, like an Essendon lair. You know, it's not just a hangar; it's a lair. It's under, you know, you know. Uh, was it Thunderbirds? It all kind of the ground kind of opens up, and we kind of go up from there. Maybe that's where it goes. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't mind that. I, I think that we're more likely to go down, being right next to the airport, than go up. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, fair point. Fair point. Hopefully, uh, hopefully not the same for our movements on the AFL ladder. Um, <laughs> all right. So we move on to Windy Hill now. Um, Windy Hill is one that we've mentioned a few times, and I, I think Windy Hill holds a, a special place in the hearts of a lot of Essendon people and supporters and fans. And uh, a lot of people have seen it, obviously, go from being the the heartland or the, the home ground to, to being something that was just kind of parked and, and put on ice, I guess, for a little bit. It's been doing a bit of service for community football. I know the EDFL umpiring um, operates out of there as well. So it's, it's getting some use, but it's um, it's probably in need of some redevelopment now. There's there's parts of it that are a bit more run down than others. Uh, the, the Windy Hill gym and the aquatic section is, is pretty good because that's, that's not that old, but um, yeah, there's definitely some parts of the grandstand and the and the, the social rooms and things like that that it's probably time for a revamp there, and and there is now a bit of a plan. Yeah, so the um, there's a plan that's called activating Windy Hill. That's the official title of it. And I think it's kind of been a consultation process with a number of different stakeholders, being obviously the Mooney Valley City Council, um, 
EDFL, the Essendon Cricket Club, the Essendon Bowls Club, uh, the Essendon Football Club, obviously um, the AFL and then both state and federal governments. I guess kind of, as you said, it's about improving facilities. I think it's primarily for female football. We talked before about the football club really owning that northwest corridor and a lot of, you know, female football and a lot of the investment that we've had in the VFLW program has been to kind of develop youth female football. So that's coming through. I was kicked into local footy, into kind of Calder Cannons uh, and now into the, the VFLW side and hopefully into uh, our AFLW side. So it's kind of like a whole whole chain of your football career is kind of built around it. And obviously having a facility like Windy Hill to hold your major events in is um, is really good. So, yeah, it's upgrading those facilities, um, getting improved facilities for the Cricket Club and the Bowls Club at, at other sites within the, uh, in the Mooney Valley City Council. Um, also, I think with the, with the primary school, well, the Essendon Primary School next door and I think pegs across the road, um, obviously kind of building kind of play soft areas that children and families around the areas can kind of use and engage. So it's not just a, a sporting facility, it's a community facility that can be accessed for school, after school, on weekends, that, that time thing is kind of open to the public. It gives a bit of a, a parklands, greenlands and kind of what is now quite a... Um, or has been for a while, kind of a real build-up suburban area. So I think, you know, I think the main thing is refurbish the grandstands, uh, new oval, new lighting, new scoreboard. I think they want to build some unisex change rooms, public cafe, um, that type of thing. Allow the community, community clubs in the EDFL to kind of really have greater access to what is a, a pretty um pretty big facility? It'll be done in two stages, won't it? So the the first stage, uh, like you said, kind of I guess focuses on getting it ready and and the ability for it to have be of use to the AFLW team and the existing BFLW and the BFL teams as well. So that's like you said, having um you know digital scoreboard, change rooms, upgrades. Um, having light towers and some broadcasting uh, facilities at the cafe and things like that. And then the stage two is really about the community aspect of it, having those soft play areas and the meeting area, the casual meeting kind of areas where people can, can come and just walk up to and, and things like that as well. And then um, things to the outside about like the re- relocating or improvement of the bowls club and the cricket club and the like as well. So stage one really focuses on the, the football and the, the women's football particularly um, side of it or the community football side of it. And then stage two focuses on the, the wider community, I suppose, and, and engaging everyone else into that facility. Yeah, so I think the, the cricket club currently is split across two sites, obviously Windy Hill and Cross Keys Reserve. So I think there's there's ability for the footy club to say, look, we'll, we'll move the cricket club or... The cricket club makes the decision really where they move to because the cricket club is actually the original tenant of the ground. They actually were there before the football club. So they obviously choose where they want to do that. But is maybe an option is for us to kind of 
along with the council to say the cricket club kind of cross keys reserve. This is your permanent thing there. We assist with building the facility. That's a dedicated, you know, cricket club facility that has indoor, outdoor nets, you know, standing rooms, you know, all that type of thing for people to kind of ha- have there for the cricket club. And then the challenge is going to be about finding a suitable site for the bowls club and then obviously identifying that site and then building their facilities there for the bowls club. So I guess the bowls club is kind of a little bit, a little bit run down, I guess, like with everything else at, at Windy Hill, especially since the football clubs kind of moved out of it. So, and these days it's not just about having a dedicated bowling facility. It's about, all the other amenities that go along with it. So they've got the bowls club there at Windy Hill, but they have access to the greater fan stand, you know, the Windy Hill club, all the other facilities that the, that Windy Hill has. So obviously you're wanting to, whatever site you build at a new club at, you want to have those amenities. And practically speaking, like a lot of the people who access the facilities of a bowls club are probably uh, a bit later on in life. So there's obviously different challenges that, that that will pose to probably people who are a bit younger there. But I think all up, I was reading that I think it's going to cost in excess of $50 million to kind of redevelop Windy Hill, purchase lands, do everything associated with this project. So I think it's kind of going to be um, paid for through the club, high net worth, through local council, through state and federal government funding, through people who put memberships into the bowls club, into the cricket club, to, you know, any other of these community things they tack on to the side of it, you know, private investment, public investment, all these type of things. So, um, yeah, $50 million is not cheap when you consider the entirety of the hangar over both stages, I think we just said before, cost $50 million. So we're essentially spending the same again to fix Windy Hill, move other tenants out, move people in. So uh, logistically, I think it's it's going to take a big effort and a lot of commitment from a lot of different stakeholders over a number of years. So, um, yeah, hopefully they can get it done because the, the rendered photos that they've showed, it looks, it looks promising. And I think overall having improved community facilities is good, but I think really getting games back at Windy Hill and having – VFL games and VFLW games and even AFLW games that people can go along to and sit and watch the highest level of football they can at a traditional home ground is really important. And that, that's that real connection piece to history. You know, we talk about Ben Rutten this year, he's been his focus has been on connecting to history. Like once a week, the, the AFL side goes to Windy Hill and trains at Windy Hill. They, recently, they did the induction of all the young players that went to Windy Hill. They kind of talked to past players that went through the corridors and kind of all this type of thing. That real connection to our past is something that's that's important. And if upgrading the facilities we've got there continues that legacy for the years to come, I think it's really important. Windy Hill's been the home ground of the home ground slash training base of the football club for 90 years. So you don't want to lose that history and that connection to people going to the ground, watching teams in the red and black run around and win games. So, yeah, um, 
as I said before, it'll be interesting to see what comes <laughs> what comes of this in the years ahead. And are we going to uh, are we going to get down to the Windy Hill social uh, social club for a palmer and a pot before they push it over? Oh well, if we're allowed there, hopefully we will. And uh, it's funny we're talking about oh, the Hall of Fame before when, when they do this redevelopment. I imagine they'll probably have a Hall of Fame there as well. That'll you know, obviously lots of history at the football club. Uh, then maybe not going to have all the items they possibly have on display at the hangar. So they might have some other items that are more probably tied to uniquely to the history of Windy Hill as opposed to the football club. There might be a capacity there. So we might actually get to go to a Hall of Fame at Windy Hill. <laughs> it might be coming on the 20-year mark when we actually walk in through the doors. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be uh, really full circle, wouldn't it? If uh, yeah. relocated it and then relocated some of it back, and then that's when we went. So, yeah. no, it's uh, it's exciting times. The facilities uh, are charging ahead, and um, it's looking great. And like you said, the, the plans for Windy Hill look great as well. So that that probably wraps up the news. It's been, uh, I guess, quite a quite a lengthy and detailed episode on off season and pre season news, and with, with more of a focus of. Uh, the club and the off-field stuff, um, I suppose. So um, that's been a, an enjoyable episode to go through. And I guess the next episode we do will be equally as enjoyable. That's um, It's going to be our long-awaited Christmas wish list. I know both of us are really keen to, to do this and we've been talking about this uh, um, offline for a little bit and we're, we're preparing to do that. And that's uh, that's coming, coming out soon. This episode... Is currently episode forty, so next week will be forty-one, and I think in the year and a bit that we've been doing this, we've consistently said our favourite episode to do was the Christmas wish list, uh, and that was I think it was episode four, right? And all year we've been kind of we go back to that's kind of been our reference point is oh how can we get how can we get these podcasts to sound more like the wish list and how much fun did we have doing the wish list and and maybe it's a Christmas wish, so it's Christmas time. You probably you're a bit more relaxed anyway. Work's kind of eased down for the year, and it's off season, so you kind of you're dreaming a little bit as opposed to reporting on games we've you know lost by ten goals and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I'm really excited. It's full, it's full pipe dream stuff. The wish list, which is great. You can, yeah, <laughs> you know. Oh, what if? You know, what if Kane Baldwin, who's coming off two knees, comes out and kicks 80 goals and wins the Coleman? It's like it's like that type of mentality. How can we you – know, such and such is going to come out next year, you know, and win the Brownlow. <laughs> you know, Jake String is going to be the best player. It's just completely wild fantasy stuff that I think you don't really get to do much as a supporter, let alone probably – as an adult, you know, as an adult supporter of the club, it almost takes you back a little bit to being a kid and having all those dreams that, you know, next year's the year, we're going to win the flag, you know, such and such is happening. So I, I'm really looking forward to that. What about you? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head just there at the end when you said it takes you back to being a kid. And there's there's a level of, um, of I guess, optimism at this, uh, when it's the pre-season time of the year, there's a level of optimism, hope and naivety. And I think that naivety takes us back to when we were kids and uh, yeah, you just thought that you'd win the premiership every year and that you're a genuine chance every week. So 
um, that's the that's I think the enjoyable part of it. And yeah, looking really forward to that. So everyone keeps an eye out for that one as well, and um, we'll we'll be on to that one uh, very shortly. All right, well that's uh, that's it from us, I think, Brendan. So go Dons, go Bombers. Whoosh.